Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Dear brothers, sisters, friends and foes And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast With your host, Didi Hussain um, This is an emergency podcast And there'll be a few others in, in light of the coronavirus outbreak uh, For the sake of time sensitivity uh, and relevance The date today is Friday the 27th of March, 7pm and at the time of recording this podcast, the total number of coronavirus cases around the world is 585,000 with 26,826 deaths, unfortunately. With regards to the UK, it currently stands at 14,543 cases with 759 deaths, a third spike since yesterday. And by the time this podcast is released, unfortunately and sadly, the cases of deaths uh, would have significantly increased But we pray to Allah uh, That's not the case Without any further delay I'd like to introduce today's guest uh, She's a frontline GP Currently located in Manchester And that's Dr. Saima Iqbal Saima, Asalaamu Alaikum Wa Alaikum Asalaam How are you doing? I'm alright, thank you Thanks for having me on Thank you for coming on um, It's a crazy time And I know everyone's talking about coronavirus I know as soon as you joined us You finished work And you said everything And everyone's just discussing coronavirus And I think it's understandable That it has consumed everyone's minds uh, As well as news As well as within families uh, So it comes as no surprise um, I want to kick off today's podcast With some quick fire questions Okay. I, I don't want you to be uh, surprised or taken back by somebody's questions But the reason I'm going to ask you this is because it's doing the rounds And it requires uh, an expert to some degree to uh, clarify on this, yeah? Okay So, coronavirus or COVID-19, right? What is the appropriate term? Which is it? Is it coronavirus or is it COVID-19? What is it? Are they just two of the same thing? They're pretty much the same thing. Coronavirus is a term for a group of viruses um, and they can infect mammals and birds. So when they infect humans, you get respiratory tract infections and it can be anything from like your common cold that I'm sure we've all had to things that are more serious, such as SARS or MERS or in this instance, COVID-19. OK. And does it originate from bats? This question keeps getting asked. Um, COVID-19, apparently the genetic makeup of this virus is very similar to coronavirus in bats. Okay. That's where I think this kind of theories come from. But how true it is, I'm not entirely sure. So the prevalent coverage has been that the the way or where it's originated from is one, one uh, wet markets, right? Now, unfortunately, this kind of theory has been weaponized and racialized uh, yeah, has, against yeah. the Chinese people. But is there, from, from a medical point of view, is there some truth that that, that is where it's originated from? I mean, if it's very similar genetically to the coronavirus found in bats, then, you know, there is some question as to, you know, has there been some transmission, you know, to humans? It's very much up in the air. I don't think I've not read anything for certain. Let's put it that way. Um, I know it originated, I think it was end of December in Wuhan, the okay. first case. Yeah. Um, so I think it's you can't say, you know, it's definitely because of apps, you know, or I, I don't think you can say that at all, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Now, another crazy theory that's doing the round is that it's somehow linked to 5G telecommunications. Have you heard that one? I have not heard that one. <laughs> that's a new one. Um, did, how? Like, how is that possible? You tell me, can, can these kind of diseases and viruses be contracted via telecommunication? 
And radio? No. Uh, ra- no. No. Okay. No. I can certainly say no to that one. Okay. So for the conspiracy theorists out there, it's yeah. done. Yeah, it's a done show. And last but not least, is it similar to the flu? It, like, like people are saying, oh, you know, the coronavirus is just like the flu. It's like the common cold. No, so it is. It is. You know, like I said, coronaviruses, group of viruses can range anything from the cold, flu to COVID-19. The difference, however, is with COVID-19, we know very little about it. There's no vaccine and there's no cure. And that's how it differs from the flu. Okay. Now, into the serious stuff. How's work been with you? How's work been? Uh, work has been difficult work in the past I think I would say particularly in the past two weeks we have implemented changes that we would have implemented over years we've had to literally do things in days and weeks rather than you know in months and years that makes it very stressful because you're trying to keep the service going people are still getting ill you know it's not just covid people are still having all the other illnesses as well and you have to try and keep a service going, keep your staff safe, keep you safe and still be in a position to deal with patients and all the illnesses and anxieties and everything else that's going on at the same time. So we've overhauled completely the way that we see patients. I think lots of people are familiar with going to see their GP, making an appointment face to face. And that has totally been overhauled. So now in order to see a GP face to face, if it's needed, you would have to ring, in in my practice, you'd have to ring the practice first, be triaged by a doctor, so have a telephone consultation first, and then if it's deemed necessary that you need to be seen face-to-face, if it's safe to do so, we will then do that. And how how are medical professionals prioritising between people who have symptoms or have been tested positive for COVID-19 and let's say, I don't know, cancer patients, or how how are medics prioritising this? It's not about prioritizing. I think, you know, there's different care pathways, you know. So if if you when you're doing your telephone consultation, you know, there's signs or symptoms that someone might have cancer. So, you know, if they don't have a cough or a temperature, you'd get them in face to face. To be honest, if it's something urgent and they do have a cough or a temperature, we have isolation rooms. So we would put on our PPE gear and we would still see that patient because the care, delivering the care is still important. Mm. But it's just getting that balance between keeping your staff safe, because if we all go off sick, there's going to be no workforce to continue the service. So you've got to get the balance between keeping us safe and seeing the patients. There's an analogy, isn't there, where, do you know, when the plane is nosediving and the oxygen masks come down, you put the mask on yourself first before you help others. That's why we've got to ensure we're safe so we can help others. Okay. Now, in terms of, had we had, had we enjoyed the benefit of hindsight, which obviously is a hypothetical scenario, what could the UK and generally any other country have done to make this process which we're dealing with now, this pandemic, easier? What things could we have done? I get asked this a lot, you know, could things have been done sooner, okay? You know, we knew, uh, you know, it happened in December, we knew things were going to happen in January, February. We could have done things, okay? We could have done things like get the extra PPA, you know, the personal protection equipment, Mm. in sooner, get the ventilators sorted sooner, get the staff, you know, we're so under-resourced in the NHS. There's not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses, there's not enough beds. We barely deal with the normal winter crisis. And that's when you have normal flu over, you know, many, many months. What we're about to do is experience 
worse than that in a very short period of time so yeah we could have done things sooner why were flights still coming in early on you know people were flying in from china from italy we didn't stop flights you know why didn't we some would argue could you have done the lockdown sooner and i can understand when people say oh let's do the lockdown sooner but it i understand the stepwise approach i understand about flattening the curve could we have done the lockdown sooner and possibly prevented, you know, as much of a peak? It's a difficult one because when you speak to patients that are in isolation, they're struggling. Okay. And what you don't want them to do is come out of isolation at the time when you really need them to be indoors. So I sort of understand why the, you know, we we delayed a little bit on the isolation front. Okay. But could, if we'd done it sooner, could the peak have been less? Could more lives potentially be saved? Possibly, but I think this is where time, you know, this is what we're going to discover in the next 10 to 14 days, I think. Now, in terms of the number of ventilators, right? Yeah. Uh, from my understanding, uh, there's 12,000 by 8,000 in reality. Is that, is, is that, yeah? Yeah, now, yeah I think the figures I've seen are 8,000. I think they've asked companies like Mercedes, Dyson to create many more, mm. um, which is great. But like, where are the staff coming from to man these ventilators you can't just put someone on a ventilator normally patients are in critical care beds with ventilators you have one nurse per patient you know where are they coming from we're not testing frontline staff we don't know who's already had the illness who hasn't staff are going to go off sick we're going to get reduction in numbers of staff i you know it's a worry i think you know people in the nhs we always cope we always find a way through and that that's one kind of ray of hope that we will find a way through it. Mm. But yeah, you're right. You know, ventilators, why didn't we do it sooner? Frankly speaking, can any country really prepare for a pandemic of this nature then? Can, can it? How, because let's say, for example, if we were to compare the budget for the health sector, the NHS, and we compare it to, let's say, national security, right? Yeah. One could argue that, look, to invest billions of pounds into national security, weapons, armament, whatever it may be, that is a real life threat in terms of foreign policy, domestic policy, domestic surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. But with regards to NHS's preparation for a pandemic, how often does a pandemic come for you to prepare for it sufficiently? No, that's true. But if you're already running to capacity, you have no extra leeway to give, do you? Okay. You know, if you look at how we are compared to other countries, you know, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but, you know, we're well below other countries in terms of doctors, nurses, you know, beds even per per person in the population. We should at least have aimed prior to all of this. You know, this is a government that brought in so many cuts, cut out nurse bursaries, doc, junior doctors left, you know, strikes. They they have undersourced and underfunded the NHS for years. Um, and this is a result of it. So everything they're doing now, we should have already had these this in place, you know, on a normal day-to-day -day sort of working basis. We should be much better staffed and resourced than we are at the moment. And we would have been in a better position to cope with the pandemic then. I mean, without necessarily politicising what we're currently experiencing, right? Mm. So, so as an NHS staff, as a frontline staff, as a, as a doctor, how does it make you feel, in light of everything that you've just said in your own words, that then this current government has then the nerve to give you all a round of applause at eight o'clock yesterday? Does it, does, it, does it not make you feel like, okay, fine, you can give me a round of applause, but you've currently contributed significantly single-handedly to the state of the NHS as we speak? 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, my whole street came out. We even had fireworks, um, which is nice to see because when you're totally stressed and to see the support from people. But I did, you know, you do wonder how many of those people voted Tory, you know, and how many of those people, um, you know, at the time when the NHS needed funding, did they vote the other way? Um, but now I think everyone's realising, actually, we need the NHS, we need the doctors, we need the nurses. Mm. And that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not the politicians or the celebrities or anyone else that's going to make a difference. It's the frontline staff, the key workers, whether you're a truck driver, whether you're, you know, a doctor, a nurse, a, you know, they're the people, the teachers, they're the ones that are hopefully going to help us get through this pandemic and the weeks ahead. I mean, looking specifically in terms of Europe, looking specifically at the case of Germany, right? They've had many cases um, very low death rate and even an, an, a much higher uh, recovery rate. Their mortality rate, from what I recall, is around 0.2 or 0.02, something really low, right? Why is that the case with Germany? I think probably because they are better resourced, you mm. know, in terms of doctors, nurses, beds, facilities, and they probably did the lockdown a lot sooner, I think, than mm. we did. Um, I, you know, the lockdown... Will it work? Does social distancing work? Will social isolation work? You know, shielding patients at the moment, will it work? I think we're going to find out in the next few weeks if the strategy the government has taken will really work. Do you remember when there was talk about herd immunity? Yeah, what, is, know, her, what, what, what is herd immunity? Herd immunity. Makes us all sound it's like cattle. Basically, it's when you get a large proportion of a population becoming immune to a, a disease or an infection, either because they've had it or because they've been vaccinated against it. And then because of that, they indirectly protect the smaller group of the population who haven't had the disease and haven't been vaccinated against it for whatever reason. And I think the government, whilst we, I understand herd immunity issues, you know, we, we see it with vaccinations and things. I, I think they took a massive gamble, um, relying on the fact that, you know, the younger population will probably develop this herd immunity, protect the elders. But as you're starting to see, some of the younger population, even without underlying health conditions, yeah. are becoming unwell and getting COVID and ending up on ICU. So I think it's, you know, it was a it was a gamble to take. And I think when they realised it wasn't working, that's when we went to full lockdown. And, um, In fact, would you say we're even on full? Is this full lockdown? It's a, it's a partial lockdown. It's a partial lockdown, I think. Yeah. I don't think it's a complete lockdown. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I do see both sides. I, you know, I can understand, you know, being isolated for 12 weeks. If you've got mental health issues or you don't have community support or friends and family or neighbours to help you, mm. how do those people manage and in, just on the topic of herd uh, immunity, right, because for, for those of us who are not uh, medically in tune with these terms and terminology, it sounds like it makes you feel like somewhat cattle, right? And uh, has herd immunity worked successfully anywhere else from your... From I think, you know, it's it's difficult. You know, people say there are... Some, some people say we're not going to vaccinate our children. We don't need to because herd immunity will protect them because the majority of children have had their vaccination. So it's unlikely that my kid will catch anything because the disease isn't out there in the community. So they rely on herd immunity in order to not vaccinate their children. The problem comes when not enough people are becoming infected and you don't know who's infected and who's not and who's carrying it. And I think that's the situation here as well. We don't really know who has it, who doesn't, you know, who's carrying it. 
you're more, you're more likely to catch it if you're around someone who's symptomatic, but they also say people that aren't symptomatic can still pass on the disease. And at the moment, because those tests haven't been rolled out, although today the government did say that they would be rolling out tests to frontline workers, I think they said, I think Michael Gold was on earlier, mm. um, saying they would roll a few hundred out over the weekend and then the rest out next week. Um, but yeah, hopefully we get the test, we work out who's had it, who hasn't. I think they're looking at tests, so looking at IgG and IgM, so they're looking at immunity to work out who's had it and who hasn't. And then that way, you know, it, it makes things a lot clearer, especially if you're a doctor, you need to know, have you had it or have you not had it? So you can do your job without the anxiety and the fear that we're all doing our job with at the moment. Okay. Now, on the, on the issue of testing, right? Now, countries like South Korea and Germany have been praised for mass testing. Like They've been testing yeah. a lot more. So, yeah. so, so why, again, is there a case where we have countries like Germany and South Korea that have done mass testing, but in the case of the UK, there wasn't mass testing? What's, what's preventing us from carrying out more tests? Do you know, I don't know why we haven't developed these tests sooner when we knew it was coming. You know, why do we not? Why did we not create these tests sooner? We knew this was coming. And that's, again, one of the things that I, you know, I wonder, you know, why did we not act on it sooner? I understand Chris Whitty, I think it was, said a few days ago, look, the tests have to be accurate because the last thing you want is to tell someone that you've had it and they haven't and they put themselves at risk. So I do understand the reasons for, you know, delaying it, making sure it's really accurate. But could we not have done this a little bit sooner, like, you know, four weeks ago, perhaps? And are these tests, are we producing and manufacturing these tests ourselves domestic or would we be buying it from other countries? They asked that question today at the conference, and I don't think the answer was particularly clear. I think one of the reporters asked which company is producing these tests. And I think the answer given by the deputy CMO, I think it was, was um, it's quite a few different companies that are producing the test, but it wasn't entirely clear. Now, if you look online, there are companies selling coronavirus testing kits right there was even a story in the guardian of a doctor who bought them for 125 yes. pounds and then went into solemn for 375 he was literally making a killing of a pandemic uh don't mind the pun he made it i think millions he made millions but he yeah but, but he was he bought it for like 100 125 and he was selling it for 375 now on top of your head do you know of any reliable testing kits online no okay no okay. no if i did i would have used it by now okay Fair enough. Um, in terms of like, uh, we were talk let's let's go back to the issue of lockdown. Yeah. Okay. W would you personally support a stronger lockdown? Yes. Okay. Yes. I think that I think we need to just this whole social distancing. We just need a lockdown. We just need people to stay in their homes so that they're safe, so that the disease does not spread. So how then do we address the issues which you mentioned yourself about those who are suffering mental health, those who are alone? And we already know, unfortunately, with a number of indigenous Caucasian populations in Europe, the elderly live alone or in care homes. Yes, they right? do. Yeah. They're, they're, and I've got many patients like that. Yeah. They're, they're, and they don't enjoy they don't enjoy the privilege that, I don't know, Asian black ethnic minority communities enjoy with extended families and a wide community support. How, how do we address that issue? So on the one hand, you want a strong lockdown. But on the other hand, you rightly highlight that there are people suffering and will suffer more so from from this uh, total lockdown. How do you how do you balance it? What's the balancing? Act I think here? this is where you need to identify, you know, work with with community groups, with general practices to identify the patients that 
are vulnerable, that do live alone and work with supermarkets to ensure that they're getting their basic needs, with pharmacies. But it's a massive operation. There isn't a simple solution to this. Mm. And even those that aren't elderly, those with mental health needs that are going to be isolated for 12 weeks, what impact that is going to have, what impact this whole pandemic is going to have on everyone, mm. I think we will find out in a few months' time. Now, one of the things we've been hearing since uh, the pandemic broke and, and, and it's been constantly reported in the news that the NHS could potentially be reaching a point, a breaking point, right? What does that mean in reality and in practical sense? What does that mean? What in reality and practical sense, it means we were full, okay? The beds are full, the staff, are, there's not enough staff, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses. We have created 30,000, I think it's 30,000 beds by clearing out hospitals. We've stopped all elective, which means routine procedures, cancelled all clinics, you know, sent anyone home that is able to go home to prepare ourselves. We were working at capacity before. We've created this small amount of capacity. Is it going to be enough? I don't know. You know, we brought doctors and nurses, you know, student nurses and doctors out of retirement and, you know, medical students are now going to get involved. It's really difficult to know if we've done enough. So you know, like we, the glass was full before. We've emptied it a little bit. Is it going to overspill again when this hits the peak? We don't know. I think it might. Now, with um, now, this is why the isolation and staying at home is so important. Now, with fifteen thousand former NHS staff that have come back to assist the NHS, I think it was around a hundred thousand people have volunteered to help the NHS. Uh, how much relief is that in in real sense to the to, to the NHS? You know, they, they've created. I think in Excel, they've created what four thousand beds. Five hundred of them are yeah. ICU beds. Yeah. We heard today that you know. Uh, NEC in Birmingham and in Manchester they're going to create you know essentially makeshift hospitals um, I don't know who's manning these hospitals um, so it's, it's really difficult one to answer because I don't know what's actually going to happen you know how we're going to look after the patients that are in these hospitals who's going to look after them and what are we going to do about all the staff that are going to go off sick Mm. or have to isolate because a member of their household is off sick you know how are we going to manage that workflow when people are going off do we have enough people extra did we factor that in that you know when we when we called on the extra staff did we factor in the the fact that people are going to be off sick as well and is that enough staff to to balance that deficit as well or is it just the extra that we needed if that makes sense now the last time the UK had a quarantine and a lockdown of this nature was World War Two, right? Okay. Uh, and when you said that who's going to man these beds, who's going to man these ventilators, right? Can it not be a case? I mean, forgive my ignorance. How much training and expertise does one need to man a bed or a ventilator? You need a high, you need a high level of expertise. I know that student. Uh, I know that junior doctors are being trained at the moment to um they're being trained up to help on the critical care beds um my husband who is a surgeon he's an orthopedic surgeon though but he has some icu previous background knowledge because he's done a rotation on it um these are the people that are being drafted in to kind of help when when everything becomes you know at breaking essentially really bad okay these are the people that are going to come in and help but in terms of normally you would have one nurse per critical care bed OK, um, at the moment, I don't think we're going to be able to fulfill that ratio. OK, now, inshallah, once 
the pandemic is over and things have settled and we've we've overcome the peak which is expected in 2-3 weeks at time of the yeah. filming of this podcast do you hope that there'll be some level of appreciation for the NHS and, and frontline staff like yourself as opposed to just kind of like ceremonial round of applause at 8 o'clock and that there's some real appreciation for GPs, for nurses, for medical staff and, and, and people who are essentially keeping this country going at the moment do you know what? If the, if I would like to see real appreciation, but I'd like to see it in terms of actual change in policies, actual recruitment drives, actually bringing bursaries back, actually increasing wages for nurses, you know, recruiting more junior doctors, keeping staff staff morale. It was low in the NHS. You know, we will carry on. I know we will always carry on, but there's a point. How long can you take advantage of that? You know, if we are going to show real appreciation for the NHS, it has to be reflected in the policies and the changes that the government brings about after this pandemic. We cannot be in the situation we were in prior to this pandemic again. Mm. Now, the peak which we're expecting in two to three weeks, right? I think it might be sooner. How is this calculated? How is the peak calculated? I think you look at the, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. Okay. They're the people that are looking at this, but you know, you can see the way the cases are rising, how fast they're rising. You know, the incubation period is anywhere between a couple of days to 14 days, usually about five, 10, around 10 days, five to 10 days. So anything that was happening five, 10 days ago, all the people that were mixing, you know, prior to the lockdown, they're the cases that we're going to start seeing coming through now. Mm. You would expect that once the lockdown was announced, there'll be less mixing. And so the cases, you know, in a couple of weeks should start to drop. Mm. Um, you know, the increase shouldn't be as high per day. Um, but it relies on people actually following the guidance. And how's it affecting in terms of like your, your practice and your clinic and even the kind of observations that you've had from, from colleagues? How is this panic and this tsunami of a of a peak that we're expecting how's that affecting colleague relationships like i think i think in my practice my staff have been amazing mm. like literally i can't praise them enough and i think that's for many practices people are tired 100 percent. they're tired they're emotionally drained um and there's a lot of anxiety um i think as a medic we obviously get daily briefings about what's going to happen, what changes we need to implement. And every day there's been something, you know, something to change or implement. And I think the dread or the fear of what's going to happen um, is always there. I think when my husband became ill, it brought it very much home. Um, you, initially it was a case of you know it's only going to affect the well it's going to mostly affect the elderly population or those with pre-existing conditions but when I've heard of like colleagues my age I'm not going to give my age away but I'm definitely not okay. 50 okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so when I heard of colleagues my sort of age who are fit and well who are GPs and doctors on ICU it really bring it hits it home so when my husband ended up going into hospital because his oxygen levels dropped and he's fit and well you know he's a non-smoker he's he's well in himself and it affected him then it was very much a case of okay this is you know the reality the anxiety is very much there both on a personal level and professionally and tell me a bit about when your husband uh, did shoulder symptoms, right? Tell me a bit about the observation, what you saw in terms of how his health was deteriorating, how he got better. When we spoke yesterday, very briefly, you spoke about this five-day spike thing where there's... Yeah. Tell me a bit about 
how it was in the house. So it started, we started with a little bit of a cough. Um, and initially it was like, okay, it's just a little bit of a cough. It needs to be a continuous cough. You know, the definition is quite clear. It needs to be a continuous cough. Then he, he got a temperature. The cough becomes more, it becomes quite continuous. So you cough, cough, coughing, and it's hard for him to stop. Um, day one, day two, not too bad, coughing, bit of a temperature. As time went on, he noticed that his chest was becoming tighter because he became more short of breath. And that's when, um, when he became more short of breath, that, that's when we got alerted. Well, he's normally fit and well, he shouldn't really be short of breath. Um, and then that's when we contacted the hospital and they said, you know, to bring him in. As a GP, I've got a little uh, SATS machine, yeah. which measures your oxygen levels. Okay. And I could tell by looking at the way he was breathing that he was struggling. And when we did his oxygen levels, they were low. Um, and then he went into hospital and usually, you know, you hear that it's around day five of the illness that if the people are going to dip, they dip at around that time. Um, Alhamdulillah, it could have gone either way. He made a recovery and now he thinks he's like Batman. He's running around, you know, I've survived. Uh, and will he, be, yeah. will, he, will he be going back to work? He's already back at work. SubhanAllah. Yeah, he went back yesterday. Seven, so seven days isolation and back at work. And when you said that he was isolated at home for seven days, was it actual isolation, him locked up in one room? Yeah, we lo yeah, it was fantastic. We locked him <laughs> in one room. Um, yeah, so we did, I mean, we'd already taken measures such as, you know, taking the towel out of the bathroom and the kitchen so that we're not sharing towels. Yeah. You know, already when we're coming home from work, we're doing things like wiping your phone down, wiping your keys down, leaving your bag at the door, getting changed straight away, making sure clothes are washed at a higher temperature. So we'd already done things like that. Um, just to, because obviously where we're working, we are potentially, you know, you're always wary that you're going to bring something back home. I've got two young kids. Mm. Not seen my parents for like four weeks now because wow. I've locked them up in isolation, kind of wave at them through the window when I'm dropping off shopping and food and things. So big drastic measures, to be honest, which I think we all have to take mm. if we are going to get through this pandemic, which we will, inshallah, but we just need to... We really, I can't stress this enough, we need to literally isolate ourselves in the house and only go out if it's really necessary. Do you know when I see like young people, I saw yesterday a couple of young lads who were just, you know, they had no concept of social distancing, staying two metres away. It took me all my effort. I had, to, I had to say something just to say, you know, guys, like you need to be respecting this two metre rule thing. I think I think sometimes when we're young, we think we're invincible, but we just mm. need to be wary that this this illness is not going to discriminate against mm. age or you know anything. I mean, bringing Race. the bringing the podcast to a, a, a conclusion. I mean, we've heard a lot that the Muslim community specifically, um, whilst we make up around five percent of the population, the number of deaths amongst the Muslim community seems to be significantly and disproportionately higher. Uh, is the Muslim community more vulnerable to contracting uh, COVID-19 than other communities and other demographics? I think I think it's a multiple, it's a number of factors. Look, we are more sociable. When we meet up, we hug, we shake hands. It's just a natural thing for us to do. A lot of us live in extended families, so mm. you have the elders living with you and you've got young kids in the house as well. People are going out to work, 
you know, they could be carriers, but not have symptoms, be bringing illnesses back. And it's actually really social. It's difficult to socially isolate yourself in a house, especially where there's young kids. Or there's, you know, you can't just put your your nanny or your daddy, you know, in a room on her own or on his own, or, or lock the kids up and not. You know, it's natural for kids to want to go to their grandparents and vice versa. I think you just it's and I think that's probably one of the reasons I think we were some mosques stayed open for potentially a bit longer than they should have I feel you know I think mosques should have closed their doors sooner I think that's a whole other topic anyway um because as much as they try to bring certain measures in you know like over oh, the elderly would pray separately or you can bring your own prayer mat you you know you can't avoid it's droplets it spreads via droplet you know you can't avoid it really um i think most should have probably closed a bit sooner um yeah i think you know just we just need to take the measures that we need to take to keep ourselves safe it is harder for the muslim community um just because i think mostly because we live in extended families and a lot of the information that's coming out from the government it's in english mm. so if you don't understand you know you can't read english and it's not in multiple languages mm. it's very difficult for the asian community to grasp what is social isolation um or you know how what is you know what is this social keeping two meters apart it's very difficult for people to understand well my mom and dad my mom and dad got back from bangladesh around 2 weeks ago right all right okay uh, and my dad fully understood the severity of what's going on whereas my mom didn't yeah so when i explained to my mom about the pandemic about the nature of it being airborne and and droplets none of this really made you know she was like no. yeah like what is this stuff she understood a bit when i told her that makkah medina was closed then she understood okay yeah. okay this is serious stuff but i think one of the reasons one of the reasons it's not the reason is that when you speak to asian muslims or or people from africa or asia or the middle east right and you hear of um you know calamities they think of war they think of famine they think of occupation they think of starvation they think of things that you can visually see where people are suffering and dying yeah so it was difficult for my mom even till now to understand the severity of how this virus spreads yeah if you could have the ears and the attention of our community especially the more kind of elder the elder generation the 55 60 plus right who do find isolation very difficult very difficult yeah what would you say to them in terms of the severity of how this virus spreads okay i would say this virus is going to spare no one okay if you are elderly you are more likely to become seriously ill okay we have a certain amount of capacity in hospitals we have a certain amount of itu beds and if you are elderly you know there are going to be some very tough decisions that are going to be made by medical professionals as to which people need uh, you know are, are able to get onto those itu beds okay and there and i think people need to understand that if you're elderly with multiple comorbidities and you know there's someone else who's younger who's normally fit and well the decision as to who will get that bed i think you know i think it would be the younger person if i'm being honest yeah um so i think the elderly need to understand that if they become ill with this there is only a limit as to what we can do in the medical field to help them at this point okay is there any is there any kind of concluding advice you would give Uh, to Muslims, non-Muslims, your fellow Britons, as to 
what the, the, if there's one message that you can drive home to everyone listening, watching this podcast and beyond, what would that message be regarding this pandemic? Stay at home. Please just stay at home. I wish I could shout it from the rooftops. Please stay at home and wash your hands. Okay. Stay at home, people. Wash your stay hands. Stay at home. Please stay at home. Okay. Do you know, like, you'll probably click this in later, yeah? But when I said to my mum, so I go shopping for my mum. Okay. She goes, oh, get get me, um... She eats, for some reason, she eats, she's like in her 70s and she eats Kellogg's Special K yeah. and it has to be peach and apricot. So I'm in the middle of Sainsbury's, the shelves are empty and I said to her, mum, there's no peach and apricot, will you eat red berries? Remember, I've said, to, I've drilled home, you cannot leave the house. So I ring her and she says, Google me, it doesn't matter, I'll go to Tesco and I'll pick it up from there tomorrow and I'm stood in the middle of Sainsbury's aisle, just yelling at them, saying, if you get ill, you may not get a ventilator. No one is going to be able to rescue you from this. Just to drill home the message of, please just understand how serious it is and you just need to stay at home. I think, you know, sometimes I'll speak to my mum and she'll say, if it's in God's hands, if Allah wills, it's going to happen. And I have to remind her, he also says, please tie your camel, you know, take the precautions. We're being told what the precautions are. Mm. Please listen and take the precautions. And that's, you know, that's often I've heard this, um, you know, it's it's in God's hands. What's going to happen is going to happen. Mm. But, you know, we, we can do our bit as well. Absolutely. Zakhalakhev, Dr. Simon, it's an absolute no honor having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of everyone the muslim community britons that uh, you know what your work is very much appreciated we we value you and uh, i hope you stay strong and the morale stays high thank you do you know what i love my job i know like i think people that know me know this i love it but i've never been so scared to do it like i've never been so honored to do what i'm doing but i've also never been so scared to do what i'm doing at the moment either but inshallah we will we will totally get through this inshallah inshallah may allah accept your efforts and uh, may allah preserve your family and your loved ones i mean and you too thank okay. you take care Brothers and sisters, you've heard that from Dr. Saima. There'll be other doctors coming on in future episodes uh, coming ahead. This particular podcast should be out in 48 hours. By that time, the actual correct statistics will be at the bottom of this screen. Uh, brothers and sisters and friends, please listen to the doctor's advice. And the advice that you've probably been hearing on your radio stations, on the newspapers and online, stay at home, isolate yourself, really avoid coming out unless you really have to. Right. This is literally to do with the preservation of, of our life and especially our elderly and our parents and our loved ones. And I know it's very difficult. I've been struggling myself. Right. And it's not easy, but it has to be done. You know, people, there seems to be a consensus about isolation, staying at home, quarantining, only going out when you absolutely need to. And it comes as no coincidence that everyone is saying the same thing. The professionals, the experts, they're telling us this. So please, if you're listening, you're watching Take heed of this advice. Stay home, stay safe. We pray to Allah that He protects everyone against this virus. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He safeguards and protects and preserves our loved ones. And inshallah, together we can overcome this pandemic. Ameen. Stay blessed. Uh, like this video, share this video, leave a comment, subscribe to the Five Pillars channel. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast of Five Pillars and Mad Monarch production.